This morning we return to Philippians chapter 2, where we read one of the greatest statements about Jesus Christ. You see, what you believe about Jesus will determine if you spend eternity in heaven or hell. Would you please stand with me as I read from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you for all the music that we have sung and heard today that gives praise to Jesus as King and Lord and Savior. Father, I pray if there is one that is here today that is not certain that heaven is their home, convict them of sin, draw them to yourself. May they receive the free gift of salvation and be born again into the family of God today to make a commitment to be saved. Father, for each Christian, touch our hearts. Help us to see that Jesus is Lord. May he be Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Every year, Time Magazine has a cover story about Jesus Christ. And they typically asked a question like, like, who was Jesus? And if you spend a couple of dollars and buy the magazine, you can open to an article on the inside and read the great scholars who eloquently lie about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And whether you believe it or not, it is still true. If you don't believe it today, God says there's coming a day when you will believe. But if you wait too long, it will be too late. And this is what we find in Philippians chapter 2. Look with me in your notes, the plea for unity. In verses 1 to 4, Paul pleads. He pleads for the nitpicking to stop in the Philippian church. And it becomes the introduction for one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is extremely practical. When I think about all that God has done for me, and we just sang about that. When I think about what God has done for me, it moves me to action. What can you say... What can you say that God has done for you? Can you say, God made me? Can you say, God saved me? Can you say, God forgave me all of my sins? If you are a Christian, then you can forgive. If you are a Christian, then you can get along with others because you have been forgiven. Now, just as this, is a, this passage is a mountain peak in Scripture, so should the application be a mountain peak in my life. As Christians, we have been given the supreme assignment to be like Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This attitude, uh, the actions of, of service. 
unselfish service to others. This was his lifestyle. Number two, you see the humbling of Christ. We saw that in verses 5 to 8. What is the mind of Christ? It's the attitude and actions of humility. It's being unselfish. It is someone who is concerned more about helping others than themselves. It's learning to love people you don't even like. Can you think of anybody right now you just don't like them? You don't like them. But God will help you to love them. We cannot please God without humility. Jesus said we cannot even become Christians without humility. We have to humble ourselves and ask God to forgive our sins. And he will come into our heart. You see, every day we have new opportunities to curb our pride, to curb our selfishness, and to put others first. God is against pride. We find that. We find that list of seven things that God hates. And the first one on the list, you know what it is? A what? A proud look. Proverbs 6, 17. And so James chapter 4, verse 6 uh, tells us that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And so the question then is, how can I be humble? Well, Jesus shows us how to be humble. We're to look at him. Letter A in your notes, Jesus thought of others, not himself. That's verse 6. Uh, letter B, Jesus served others. Verse 7. Now, now think about this. What did Jesus do for you and me? Well, he came from heaven to earth. He came from being a king to a slave. He came from glory to shame, from master to servant, from life to death. Why? Why did he do this? Jesus humbled himself that he might lift us up that he might rescue us, that he might save us. And as you read the Gospels, as you read the Gospels, you notice it is Jesus the one who serve others, not others who serve Jesus. I mean, he's just at the beck and call of everyone. Uh, fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, the rich and the poor, the sick and the suffering. And let her see there, Jesus humbled himself. Verse 8, he is our example. Uh, Jesus, he taught us to be unselfish. And so on page 2, I want you to see the contrast, what the emphasis is of most of the world, and put it in contrast to what Jesus said. So look with me on page 2. Uh, Greece said, uh, be wise, know yourself. Rome said, be strong, discipline yourself. Religion says, be good, conform yourself. Epicureanism says, be sensuous, satisfy yourself. Education says, be resourceful, expand yourself. Psychology says, be confident, assert yourself. Materialism says, be possessive, please yourself. Asceticism says, be lowly, suppress yourself. Humanism says, be capable, believe in yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. And then Jesus Christ comes along and says, be unselfish, be unselfish, humble yourself. We are to think of others. We are to serve others. We are to sacrifice forever. So where do we, where do we start? Well, you start, you start at home, at church. You start at work. Uh, let me give you some applications of humility. When a Christian is unselfish, they value the needs and the wants and the desires of others as more important than themselves. We find that in verse 4. Now, 
as the Holy Spirit prompts you, I left some blanks here, you can write some things in that might apply in your life as God brings it to your mind. But when a husband and a father is unselfish, he subdues his own wants and desires to the needs of his wife and family. Uh, when a wife and mother is unselfish, she isn't irritated by having to give up her agenda or her plans for the sake of her husband or her children. When a teenager is unselfish, he or she stops worrying about their self-image and they start reaching out to others. There's no reason, there's no reason why our teenagers, both guys and girls and the singles and everyone else can't get up and walk around and say hello and learn some names of other teenagers. When I came to church at the age of 15, I was the shyest guy in the youth group. I, I went to the Sunday school, nobody talked to me. I went to uh, church, I sat with my parents, and after about, after about four months, one, one unselfish teenager got up and walked across the auditorium and he introduced himself and he said, hey, would you like to sit here with us in the teen section? And I want you to know that when that happened, one unselfish teenager made a difference in my life and that was the beginning of a whole new life of faithfulness to God for me. And when I, when I gave my heart to Christ, he began to change me. And you know one of the first things that God begins to do in your life is to chisel away your selfishness. He exposes the sin of your selfishness and begins to teach us to replace it with love and grace and service to others. When an employee is unselfish, he works to make the business or company successful and he doesn't care who gets the credit. When an employer is unselfish, he learns to lift up his workers, to praise them, to encourage them, to train them, to mentor them. When a church member is unselfish, petty disagreements and minor criticisms are replaced with a sweet, caring spirit, a kind word, an attitude. Hey, hey, life is too short to go around mad. Life is too short to go around upset. Life is too short to go around discouraged. Come on now, I'm talking to all of us. God is trying to help all of us here in this passage. Life is too short to complain. This is going to take a long time, let me tell you. <laughs> they got it three times in the first service. Life is too short to complain. Yeah. Life is too short to complain. Yeah. I said, life is too short to complain. Yeah. Life is too short to complain about the pastor. Yeah. Life is too short to complain about the deacons. Yeah. Life is too short to complain about the staff. Yeah. Life is too short to complain about the nursery, yeah. the school teachers, you name it. Uh, life is too short to complain about you fill in the blank. Yeah. All right, all right, you just amen yourself there. <laughs> Do all things without grumbling and complaining, murmuring and disputing, he says. Social media is not a place for you to vent. Social media is not a place for you to rant and rave about the things that you don't like. That's actually very immature, isn't it? Sure it is. 
Helpful suggestions are great. Constructive criticism is fine. It's beneficial, but not complaining, and certainly not in social media. If you don't want people to do that to you, why would you do it to others? Let that sink in. If you don't want people to complain about you on social media, why would you do it to others? God commands unity. God says we are to follow the model of Jesus Christ, to walk in humility, to live in humility, to speak in humility. Now, now we have the rewards of choosing humility. We have the rewards of serving others. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up, James 4.10. Now, put these two together, James 4.6. God resists the proud, but God lifts up the humble. There in your notes, it is one principle with two signs. You lift yourself up, and God will push you down. You push yourself down, and God will lift you up. From a human standpoint, I cannot explain the blessings on Valley Forge Baptist Temple. From a heavenly viewpoint, I can say with conviction, it's all God. It's all God. It's all to God's glory. I'm going to give you an illustration to prove it. This is an illustration I have never shared in church for 35 years. And you'll see why in just a moment. In my preaching class at college, my second year of college, we were told if we entered the preaching contest at the college, there's about 2,000 in the college, we were told that if you enter the preaching contest, you will get extra credit for this class, and everyone was encouraged to enter. We were told that if you win the preaching contest, that you would preach a graduation before 5,000 people. I entered the contest. I got the extra credit in class. I didn't make it past the first round. That's obviously why I've never told you this story before. <laughs> I mean, who wants a pastor that can't make it past the first round of the preaching contest? I got cut early on. I, I just want you to know I'm starting all the way at the bottom. I know who I am. That's not self-deprecation. That's just honesty. God's blessings are on this church family, not because of me and not because of you. God's blessings are on us because of him. Amen. His goodness, his grace, his mercy, his sovereignty. And he pours these blessings upon us. Resist the pride. If you don't, God will resist you. Now, how does God the Father respond to the humility of Christ? And he exalts him. And so that brings us to page 3, brings us to verse 9, the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Wherefore, wherefore connects these verses to verses 6 to 8. It is because Jesus chose to serve us that God the Father chooses to exalt him. I, I wish I could bury this, this truth deep in your heart today. If you desire for God to lift you up, then you will humble yourself. 
Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him. Those two words, highly exalted, that means, it means super exalted. It means hyper exalted. The supreme purpose of God the Father in the universe today is to glorify Jesus Christ. Down here on this earth, anyone who is not constantly glorifying Christ, saved or lost, if they are not constantly glorifying Christ, they are neglecting the purpose of their life, the purpose of their existence. This is a heavy truth. Many people in our world stumble over it. They resist it, they reject it, many become angry over it, and they even deny it. But it's kind of like getting one of those, those uh, incurable disease diagnoses that has no treatment. You can deny it, and you can get angry over it, or you can and you can choose not to believe it, but it's still true. And many today say, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And you ask them, are you sure? And they say, absolutely. You know? <laughs> The Lordship of Jesus Christ is one of those absolute truths in Scripture. Many don't like it. Many deny it. Many don't believe it. But their opinion does not change the facts. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to see the exaltation of his position. Christ is exalted by his resurrection. He came out of the grave whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Uh, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Look what Warren Wearsby said. Uh, we must never leave Jesus on the cross. Some churches in their zeal to keep before their people the great sufferings Christ suffered portray him either as a helpless infant in his mother's arms or a helpless victim on a cross. But he is no longer in the cradle. He is no longer on the cross. He is seated now in the place of power. Christ is exalted by his resurrection. Christ is exalted by his ascension into heaven, seeing that he is passed into the heavens. You know, the disciples saw that. They're standing on the Mount of, of Olives, and Jesus is with them, and he gives the Great Commission one final time. And then in, in their presence, he begins to lift up you talk about levitation. He goes up, and the Bible says that he is received up into a cloud. He ascends into heaven. He is exalted. Christ is exalted by his intercession for us at the Father's right hand. When you sin, he is there to intercede for you, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. One more, Christ is exalted by his coronation. And that means that he is, he is crowned king. He is crowned king of the nations. He is crowned king of the universe. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted. I love how the Apostle Paul writes this to the Ephesians. Page 4 of your notes. Who, when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might, 
and dominion. Now watch, watch. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, that is the millennial kingdom, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Oh, the church is extremely important to Jesus Christ. In verse 6 to 8, we see the steps down. Now we see the steps up. Resurrection, ascension, intercession, and coronation. There is a sense in which we follow this exaltation. You see, as Christians, we've been promised to be with Christ. He said, because I live, ye shall live also. And so our bodies will one day die, but they're going to be raised. The ascension is the rapture spoken of in John 14. We're going to be raised up to heaven. Now, the intercession will be complete because we will be face to face. But even in the coronation, in a sense, we've been called kings. We've been called priests. We're a royal priesthood. And so in the same way we see the model of the humility, God the Father is showing us that in a sense we're going to follow in this exaltation as well. And we see the exaltation of his name, verse 9. The end of verse 9. Uh, God has given him a name which is above every name. Now in the Bible, the name represents your character. It represents the, your being, who you are. What is the name which is above every name? It can only be one name. Hebrews 1.4 says it's a more excellent name than any of the angels. More than Michael, more than Gabriel, more, of course, than Lucifer. What is the matchless name above every name in the universe? Verse 10, that of the name of Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah saves. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. It means Savior. Uh, more poems, more music, uh, more sermons have been preached about that one name than any other name in the universe. For many it brings a tear to their eye, joy to their heart. Ten years ago, I was invited to be the chaplain of the Senate for the day in Harrisburg. And I went into that great chamber in the Capitol building, and I prayed in the name of Jesus. But you know, if I walked across the hall, and I came to the, 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 the hall where the representatives meet, I would be forbidden it would be illegal to pray in the name of Jesus. Same building. You see, Satan hates that name. He hates the name that we love. It is the exaltation of his name. He is given a name above every name. When you honor Jesus Christ, you show reverence to God the Father. Don't take his name in vain. Don't use the phrase, oh my God, as an exclamation. Reserve that for reverent prayer. And then we see the exaltation of his person. Notice in verse 10, that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Jesus' name will make everyone bow. This is a weighty truth. Some of you may choke on it. This is a universal truth. This is an absolute truth. There are no exceptions. Every knee will bow. Every knee in heaven bows to Jesus Christ. That's all the heavenly host. That's all the angels. That's all the seraphim. That's all the cherubim. They all bow the knee. They worship with action. 
Every knee on the earth will bow. That includes you. That includes me. That includes the masses of humanity. And if an animal has a knee, they're going to bow to. Every knee shall bow in earth. But it also says, every knee under the earth. That's all the souls that have departed there in their spirit body. They will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's all the demons of hell will bow the knee. When was the last time that you bowed on your knees in prayer to Jesus Christ? You say, well, pastor, pastor, you don't have to bow on your knees to pray. No, no, you don't. You can pray standing up. You can pray walking. You can pray sitting down. You can pray driving. Just keep at least one eye open. Uh, you can pray wherever you want to go. Pray without ceasing. But you know, do you know that you don't have to sit down to eat dinner? But it's a whole lot easier to sit down while you're eating than to eat while you're jogging. All right? Now, you can eat while you're jogging, but it's better to sit down. And so my challenge to you is that this week, this week, you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You're going to do it in the future. Get down on your knees. And for some, you just have a cell phone handy. If you can't get back up, 911. You know, you call someone. They'll come and get you, help you up. <laughs> bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Worship with actions, but worship with words. Look at verse 11. I love this. And that every tongue should confess. Now that's, that's everyone in heaven. That's everyone on earth. That's everyone under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every being that exists in the universe will make this confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Would you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. One of the Beatles, George Harrison, sang a very popular song, My Sweet Lord, Harry Krishna. My Sweet Lord, Harry Krishna. No? No? No. Harry Krishna is not Lord. Neither is Sun Young Moon, neither is Buddha, nor Muhammad, nor Allah. Friend, let me tell you, based on the authority of God himself, Jesus is Lord, and you're going to say it. You're going to say it. Everyone in the universe is going to say it. From hell itself, Hitler is going to say, Jesus is Lord. Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi and Ted Turner are going to say, Jesus is Lord. Madeline Murray O'Hara will say, Jesus is Lord. Her son, a Baptist preacher, already does. Every politician and every judge is going to say, Jesus is Lord. Every professor, every actor, every reporter is going to say, Jesus is Lord. Every person who has ever lived, every person who ever will live is going to say, Jesus is Lord. And you, 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 and me is going to say, Jesus is Lord. Don't wait. Don't wait and say it from hell. Too late with regret. 
Say it now with joy. Today, today, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Today, receive him as your Savior. Today, put your trust that he died for you. He died for your sins. He rose again. He will give you this free gift of eternal life. Put your faith in him and have the faith of a little child. Believe the word that God himself wrote. God did not make you a robot. He loves you, and that's why he gave you a free will so that you might choose to love him and say, Jesus is Lord. I want to show you a great song, Nothing Ever Can, Nothing Ever Will, by West Coast Baptist College. I showed this last month on a Sunday night. I was admonished by several of you that I didn't say my daughter Megan is in the video. I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> Megan is in the video. Listen closely. Listen closely to the words. Satan's here. 
Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Heads bowed for a moment, eyes closed. I would ask you to think for a moment on that phrase. Jesus is Lord. Say it in your heart. Jesus is Lord. What does that mean to you? Jesus is Lord. What does it mean to you today? Jesus is Lord. Listen closely to the warning that Jesus gave us. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Father, we know that Jesus is Lord. We know, we know it by faith. We know it's a fact. And one day it will be by sight we will see the coronation. And we will bow the knee and we will confess in his presence Jesus is Lord. And now I pray. I pray for anyone in this congregation, in this auditorium, that has not yet trusted Christ, truly trusted Christ. And Father, I pray they will receive Jesus right now in this moment. I pray for each Christian who claims Jesus as Lord, that from their depths of their heart, with a pure heart, with all of their heart, they will say, Jesus is Lord, and mean it. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven because, because Jesus is my Lord. There was a time that I committed my life to become a follower of Christ. And there is evidence, there is fruit in my life. If you know that with assurance, would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? Thank you. You may put your hands down. You'd say, Pastor, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. And with all these people that passed away this last week, we are reminded of the brevity of life. We have no promise on another day. Today is the day of salvation. You say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I would, but I'm not sure. I want to get it settled today. Right now where you're seated, you can do what I did in an invitation prayer and ask Jesus Christ to become your Savior and your Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that's the name of Jesus, you shall be saved. If you're not sure that heaven is your home, don't wait another moment. Raise your hand. Pray with me today. It's not joining the church. It's not getting baptized. It's a commitment 
to become a Christian, would you simply raise your hand? That's me, Pastor. I want to be saved today. I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Anyone at all, I want to trust him today. Christian, I ask you, as we sing this song, Jesus is Lord, will you sing it from a pure heart, a full heart of love and gratitude and service and unselfishness? I pray in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together as we sing it nice and slowly. Nice and slowly, let the words sink in as we sing to the Lord. Please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we continue to learn life lessons from the life of David, man after God's own heart. Uh, there is a Bible there on the bench in front of you if you'd like to follow along. We'll be looking at several places tonight. Now, we spent three weeks in the Valley of Elah in southern Israel and saw David the giant slayer. The story was not so much about the underdog beating the bully, but about good triumphing over evil, about God defeating Satan. Why? Why? So all the earth would know there is a living God in heaven. And 3,000 years have passed, and the world is still celebrating that great victory of a teenager who took down the giant Goliath. Tonight we, we will... Uh, learn another aspect about this amazing young, young man, and I've entitled it David the Friend. A David the Friend. If you would, would you please stand with me one more time? 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 18, and we will pick it up in verse 1. Now, this is, this is right after uh, David has killed Goliath and the army of Israel has defeated the Philistines. 1 Samuel 18, 1. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle, the belt. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul sent him over, set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. May we pray. Our Father, thank you for the word of God. 
Thank you for how helpful it is to us in 2019, though this was written thousands of years ago. Thank you that you continue to work through the trials of life as you did with Horatio and Ann Spafford, so you continue to work in us when we walk through the fiery trials and the deep valleys. Give us a heart like David to respond as you would. Give us a friend like Jonathan, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In chapter 17, David had accomplished an incredible feat. Teenager, a teenager about the age of 15 who had never worn the uniform of the Israeli army, never once suited up for battle, never once was known to carry a sword. What did he do? He ran onto the battlefield, faced a giant over nine feet tall, and he killed him with the throw of a sling. It really is amazing what happened next. David gained instant popularity. He became a national hero overnight. Now, this happens, this happens pretty much in every generation and in every country. Uh, can, you, can you think of anyone in your lifetime that this has happened to? Someone you didn't know the name, and all of a sudden, they become a hero overnight. Anyone come to your mind? Yes. Captain Sully. Captain Sully. That's what I have written down right here. Do you remember Captain Sully? Was it a bird that hit the, the engine? A flock of birds, and the engines go out, and he can't land the plane. What does he do? This experienced pilot goes against what he is told to do, and he does the right thing to save all the people on that plane, including himself. And it's a risk, because there could be a boat in the water. Is that right? Oh, yeah. But he has no choice, and he brings that bird, that big plane, and he glides it in. Was it the Hudson River? Yes, that's right. And he lands it in the Hudson River. And we see the picture of the plane floating and all the people with their life jackets on, on the wings. Uh, last time I took a flight, you know, you listen to the speech, you know, in case of a water evacuation. And I said to my wife, I said, it's only happened once in history uh, where a plane landed in the water and they didn't even need their life jacket because the boats were there to pick them up. But Captain Sully became a national hero overnight. Can you think of anyone else? Lenny Skutnik. And who made him famous? President Reagan. Is that the one? President Reagan identified him at a, uh, uh, at a State of the Union address and I remember the night, I was in Washington, D.C., I was driving, it was a Wednesday night driving to church, and uh, that ice storm came in, and the lady in front of me, she hit a pole, and the pole came down, she was bleeding, and there was a wire hanging, and the sparks were flying, and uh, so we stopped and, and helped her to console her until the police arrived, and the EMTs arrived, and we made it to church, and Pastor Elstock was preaching that night, right? Not many of us showed up. <laughs> but the, the ice hit the wings, and so that plane took off from DC, from Reagan, Reagan International, and it hit the 14th 
Street Bridge, killed some people uh, there, and the thing fell into the water, and a lot of people died. But Lenny, Lenny uh, risked his life, and he saved some people. Now, there's another guy that risked his life, and he didn't make it, but he did save people. Overnight, President Reagan made Lenny uh, a, a household name that some of you even remember tonight. Anyone else? Anyone else? Todd Beamer. Todd Beamer, famous for Let's Roll. Let's Roll. And I was just thinking about that one as well. Um, uh, those planes that hit the, uh, the, the World Trade Center, they hit the, uh, uh, the Pentagon probably aiming for the Capitol building uh, or the White House, but because of the cloud cover and the trees, they ended up hitting, hitting, the, um, uh, hitting the Pentagon. But, but the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, it went down, not hitting its target, because Todd Beamer said, we're not going down without a fight. Uh, these Americans that are aboard this ship, this airship, were, were not going to be used uh, to bring destruction to other people. And, and let's roll, and they, uh, they took uh, the plane back from those terrorists, and it went down. But uh, uh, what, a, what a hero, giving his life. Uh, greater love hath this than that a man would lay down his life for another. Anyone else come to your mind? Nick Foles. Nick Foles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask who said that. <laughs> But for you who are watching online, someone said Nick Foles. All right. Okay, so let's get back on track here. When I, <laughs> I was uh, preaching in, in uh, Greece, meeting with our missionaries and Michael and Joanna DeLuca, and they took us on, on top of the Acropolis, uh, which, which uh, when the apostle Paul was there, those buildings had already been there for 400 years. And, and that uh, Parthenon was there. But you know that there's a flagpole where they proudly fly a Greek flag. And there's a monument there with this story. On April 27, 1941, the invading Nazi army had entered the city of Athens and they raised the Nazi flag high above the city of Athens. On May 30, 1941, a month later, in the late hours of the evening, two university students, Manolis Glazas, and Apostolos Santos climbed up on the Acropolis through enemy soldiers and tore down the Nazi flag. The university students' act of bravery has been identified as one of the first acts of resistance against the Nazis in Europe and the first one in Greece. It inspired not only the Greeks but all conquered people to resist against the Germans and established them both as, as two international anti-Nazi heroes of whom Corey Ten Boom and her family are a part. The Nazi regime responded by sentencing the perpetrators to death in absentia, even though they didn't know who they were. Years later, the men spoke about their brave act and their fear of returning home after they pulled down the Nazi flag down, but their determination prevailed, and to this day, Greeks worldwide consider them national heroes. And the Nazis never caught them. David became an overnight 
celebrity. And King Saul brought him into the king's court. We see that in verse 2. He brought him into the king's court. We will see that David knew how to live with success without having it negatively affect him. And that's a rare person. That's a rare person. Uh, you think of the, the Hollywood child actors and how many have ruined lives because of the money and the success and the fame. And then there are a few here and there that have lived balanced lives. Few can do it. Now here in just these verses, we see David brought into three different relationships, and some of what happens to him is out of his control. And it's helpful for us to watch how he handles the good and the bad and the ugly. Because like David, you and I are going to face challenges in our life uh, and relationships that are out of our control. And God is planning on using David to become the greatest king in the history of Israel. But first, David has to go to school. God is going to send David to the university of how to become a good king. It is a one-of-a-kind curriculum, and if you and I were God, it is not the course of study that we would have chosen. But we are not God, and he is. And so we conclude that God makes no mistakes and that he can take bad things and he can take bad circumstances and he can bring good out of it. And so this is the beginning of David learning Romans 8, 28, and it's going to last for years. And so first of all, we see David submits to a tyrant. Look with me at verse 1. It came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him, took David that day, would not let him go home anymore to his father's house. Verse 5, and David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. And David behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Here is the champion of champions, the slayer of the giant, and he goes wherever Saul sends him. He was in loyal submission to the king. He was serving really as an intern to become king without Saul even realizing it at first. What happened? What happened is he prospered. He prospered. He behaved himself wisely. David submitted to the authority. Now, what kind of authority is King Saul? Is he, a, is he a good king at this time? Not so much. Not at all. David submitted to the authority of a king who was obnoxious, who was irrational, who was bent on his destruction. Uh, David is an example of James 4.10 in action. Humble yourselves... Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So David submitted to the tyrant. Number two, David and his devoted friend Jonathan. Uh, we see that, I read in verse 1, that the soul of Jonathan and David were knit together, and Jonathan loved him. Verse 3, Jonathan and David, they made a covenant, an agreement, a pact, because he loved him as his own soul. <clears throat> verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe, the robe that was a prince that was upon him. And he gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and his girdle, his belt. Do you see what's going on here? Jonathan is the king's son. He's the prince. 
Jonathan is in line to become the next king. Jonathan takes off his princely robe. He gives it to David. He recognizes what God is about to do in the future, that David is going to become the king. And David and his devoted friend Jonathan, and we see this, this relationship growing here. Their hearts are knit together. God knew that David needed a close friend to walk with him through the deep valley that was ahead of him. David doesn't know what's ahead of him. God does. And so he gives him a friend. True, loyal, and kindred friends are rare. Now, in a church family, you have many friends. Uh, I, I, we, we know of people, many that are outside of this church, and they have no friends. They have no friends. God has blessed us abundantly because we are like-minded. We believe the same book. We believe in the same Lord. We have friends. But, but there's these, these, these loyal friends, kindred friends, and most people may only have three or four or five in their entire life. There's something about a loyal friend that will, that will cause your souls to be knit together, not just over the years, but over the decades. Kindred spirits. Let me share four characteristics about loyal friends. Uh, loyal friends are willing to sacrifice for their friend. That's, that's verse 4. We see it in verse 4. He's willing to give his princely garments uh, to, to David. Chapter 20, turn over one page and verse 4, 20 verse 4. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. What a friend. Friends, loyal friends are willing to sacrifice. A loyal friend is there to assist you in whatever way is needed. Unselfishness prevails in this friendship. Uh, Jonathan can see what God is doing, and he wants to be a part of it. Uh, secondly there, loyal friends will defend you before others. Chapter 19, turn over again another page. Chapter 19, verse 4. Now David is not present. The conversation is between King Saul and Prince Jonathan. Chapter 19, verse 4. And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee, to thee were very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it, and didst rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? A loyal friend won't talk bad about you when you are not around. At this time, Saul had determined that David is his enemy. Yet Jonathan stood up to his father. He says, Dad, Dad, you're wrong about David. And he laid out the facts. What a true friend. What a true friend. No pettiness, no envy, no jealousy. <laughs> I wonder how many people in Israel would have been tempted to think, hmm, hmm, if I let my dad kill David, 
then what does that do for me? I become king. I become king. But you see, a loyal friend will defend you before others, and that's exactly, that's exactly what Jonathan did. Letter C, loyal friends will give you the freedom to be yourself. Chapter 20, verse 41. Chapter 20, verse 41. I know we're jumping ahead here, but I want you to see the friendship. And as soon as the lad was gone, remember the arrows in the field, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times, and they kissed one another and wept one another until David exceeded. That David, David wept more than, than Jonathan did. When you have a loyal friend, you don't have to explain what you do. When your heart is broken... I mean, you can, you can, your heart can bleed all over your friend like this, and he will understand. He won't confront you in your misery. He won't share three Bible verses of why God is judging you and how you need to change and shape up. A loyal friend will give you the freedom to be yourself. And then one more. Loyal friends are a constant source of encouragement. Jump ahead to chapter 23. In chapter 23 and verse 15, loyal friends will give you the freedom to be yourself. Loyal friends are a constant source of encouragement. Chapter 23, verse 15, and David saw that King Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. Think about this. King Saul is on a rampage to kill David, and David is out in the wilderness, in the woods, and at any moment behind any bush or rock or hill, Saul and his men are there to be able to kill him. What a way to live. Moment by moment, your life hangs in the balance. He is being hunted like a wild animal. What does the son of the hunter do? Turn him in? No, no. He encourages his friend. That's a good friend. That's the kind of friend to have. And he sees David at the lowest moment of his life, and he, he brings him encouragement, and he says something like, I, I can't imagine how you're feeling, but, but you have a right to those feelings. And I want you to know there's coming a brighter day someday, but right now I'm here with you no matter what. I'm your friend. You can count on me. Someone has said loneliness is the most desperate of all English words. And so what we see here is we see a, a deep friendship. It was wholesome. It was God-honoring. And so David submits to a tyrant, David and his devoted friend Jonathan. Now we see back in chapter 18, David and his favor with the people. And so chapter 18, verse 5, and David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. He behaved himself wisely. He is, he is now the leader of a garrison of men, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. Came to pass as they came back, David returned. The women came out uh, with their musical instruments, their singing. Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. You know, David had never served in any official army before. He had never been in any kind of leadership role except over a bunch of sheep. 
But now he's commanding the troops, and he did it so well that, that even the king's servants were impressed. Despite his youth and inexperience, David acted wisely, and they liked him. The troops followed him, and even saw when he was not in a fit of depression or mania, he respected him as well. When he came home, they danced, they welcomed him, they honored him. Now this, this phrase here, uh, look at verse 14. In verse 14, chapter 18, verse 14. David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Now let me give you two aspects of behaving yourself wisely, and it has to do with your tongue. The Hebrew word, we can learn a couple of things about it. The first one is from Proverbs 10, verse 19. Let me read it to you. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is, is what? It's wise. A person who is wise knows when to keep his mouth shut. He can keep confidences when people say, don't share that, please don't share that. A good friend can be trusted with the details of your life and keep their mouth closed. I have discovered, I have discovered, sadly, that too many people enjoy telling other people what has been said about them. Hey, John, hey, John, uh, did you hear, did you hear what, 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 what Jim is doing? Did you hear about Jim's wife? Did you hear about Jim's kids? Did you hear what Jim said about you? Do you know what that does? It's like a, it's like a, it's like a verbal hand grenade. Do you think that's the right thing to do, to go to someone to tell them something that will really defeat them and make them upset at someone else. It's a form of gossip. But worse than that, it's a form of pride. And we know what God thinks of pride. God hates it. God resists the proud. It's not helpful. It's not healthy. And God is against it. And if you feel so strongly about it, then, then talk to God about it. If you feel so strongly, then go back to that person who told you the story and say, hey, you know what? I, I, can I ask you some questions? Do you, do you know that verse that says, love covers a multitude of sins? Do you, do you think that might be the way that you should handle this and just kind of forgive and let it go? And if not... Do you know that verse in Matthew 18 where Jesus says you go back to the other person? I'm, I'm really not sure that it was a wise thing for you to come to me and tell me that story. And I know it's not a wise thing for me to go and tell the other person, right? And so a wise person knows when to be able to hold his tongue. The second insight comes from Proverbs 21:11. When the scorner is punished, the symbol is made wise, and when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge. It means that when you do open your mouth, it is with wisdom. It is with discretion. It is with godliness. It is with encouragement. How do you learn how to do this? Well, by being teachable. By being teachable. 
When you think you know it all, you're blinded by pride. Paul said, no one has arrived. We need to keep learning. We need to keep growing. We need to keep changing to become more like Christ. And sometimes our best lessons will be learned from those we think are bent on hurting us. Now, I, I was taught a truth before I became a pastor, and I've sought to practice it. And that is this. Look for the grain of truth in the criticism. Look for the grain of truth in the criticism. God can even use your critics to make you become a better Christian. Wow, they didn't intend that, but you can learn from that. You can grow from that. All seems to be going well until jealousy grows in King Saul's heart like cancer. Look with me at verse 8 and 9. So the ladies are singing. That's out of David's control. It's out of Saul's control. But look at verse 8. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David uh, ten thousands, me only thousands. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. The word here for anger means to burn within. It's the slow burn. We would say that Saul had a slow burn. His worry, his fear intensified. He became consumed with it. He became paranoid. The Spirit of God, we know, had already left him much earlier because of his lack of faith, because of his pride, because of his disobedience. Saul concluded, he said, he said, I have a giant killer who is soon going to be a king killer. I've got to do something. I've got to get rid of him fast. Now look what happens next. One of the most perplexing verses you'll find in the Bible. Chapter 18, verse 10. And it came to pass on the morrow, the very next day, after Saul chose this very bad attitude towards David, it came to pass on the next day, the morrow, that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence, not once, but twice. And so the question comes, how can an evil spirit come from God? Pastor Cooper is smiling over there because he knows this is very perplexing. When you get to heaven, you can ask him, God, why did you do that? Pastor Wendell did not have a very good answer for me. How can an evil spirit come from God? God is sovereign, and he can use good as well as evil spirits and events to fulfill his purposes. I want you to think about the book of Job. Many of you are studying the book of Job. What was the source of all of Job's problems? That was Satan. I mean, that's like the chief demon, isn't it? And God gave permission. God gave allowance for Satan to come and take away everything that Job had. And then Satan appealed again, and he went back and he even took away his health. God, but, but what happened? God took a, a good man, and he made him better. 
He took a good man and he made him better because he allowed him to suffer the trials in his life. It's like the time Pharaoh hardened his heart. I will not let the Jews go, he said to Moses. I will not let them go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then you're going to read a transition. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God gave him what he was bent on doing. And I believe that's what happened here. Saul, King Saul, has uh, the Spirit of God has left him. The Spirit of God is, is no longer empowering him. And, and so after a few times, God allows this demonic spirit to come and to afflict Saul. Now this is not some troubled emotional state. This is not a mental problem. This is not the logical consequences of jealousy. This is an actual demon that tormented him. This is part of God's judgment on Saul. Would you agree? But part of God's judgment on Saul turned into a trial in the life of David. But like in the New Testament, we learn that God uses trials to mold us. God uses trials to refine us. God uses trials to make us stronger. And Saul's thinking became twisted. I'm going to get David. And instead of leading Israel, he became a paranoid and fearful leader. He focused on making David's life miserable, putting him in situations where he hoped he would die. I mean, this went on for years. It went on for years. What can we learn from all of this? A couple things. Because we do not know the future, we are to trust God one day at a time. Do you know some bad things are going to happen in your future? Misunderstandings, offenses, sins, mistakes. He said, I didn't plan on that. God allowed it to happen in his sovereignty, and you're just going to have to trust him one day at a time. That footprint's poem there's two sets of footprints, and then the trials come, and there's one set of footprints. God, God, where did you go? Why did you abandon me when I needed you the most? My child, I what? I carried you. I didn't leave you. I didn't abandon you. I carried you in the darkest days of your life. Here's a lesson. Having a close and loyal friend helps us face whatever trials come our way. I've had some dark days in my 59 years of living. You've had some dark days. You say, I've never had any dark days. Keep living, all right? <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. And having a close and loyal friend helps us, helps us face whatever trials come our way. Now, if you don't have a friend, ask God to give you one. If you don't have a friend, ask God to give you one. If you don't have a friend, start being friendly. If you don't have a friend, become a disciple or become a Timothy. You've got a friend in about 10 weeks, and that can turn into decades of friendships. We have some of those in our church here tonight. Choose to be positive and wise even when you are mistreated by others. Choose to be positive and wise even when you are mistreated by others. We can learn that from David. You don't always have to jab back 
when you're attacked. Now, this is for husbands and wives, right? You don't always have to jab back. And this is for brothers and sisters. And this is for parents and children. You don't always have to jab back when you are attacked. Look at verse 11, chapter 18, verse 11. David avoided out of his presence twice. This is good stuff. David wisely skedaddled. I don't know how to spell that, but he wisely skedaddled when Saul is throwing the javelins at him. Keep your focus on what God wants you to do. And when, when you decide, well, they threw mud at me, so I'm going to get in the mud and throw mud back at them, guess who has dirty hands? The one who threw it and the one who threw it back. Now, if you are rubbing shoulders in your life right now with a, a, a jealous, irrational, difficult person, a, a roommate, a friend, a boss, a relative, a mate, uh, remember, remember how David responded. He behaved himself wisely. <coughs> he behaved himself wisely. He knew when to shut his mouth, and he knew when to speak wisely. <coughs> And the real, real question is, who do you want to please? You want to please God? You want to please yourself? David the friend. May we pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful life lessons from David as a wise teenager. I pray, God, if there's one here tonight and, and they don't have the friend that sticketh closer than a brother, we invite them to receive Jesus Christ tonight as their Lord and Savior. Heads about, eyes are closed. You say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. And as good of a friend that David and Jonathan were, I'm telling you tonight that the best friend you can have is Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who loved you so much to die for you and rise again. And the way you become a Christian is you trust him, you believe that he took your place, he took your penalty, he took your hell, and he offers you heaven. And if you will ask and trust and believe, you can be born again into the family of God. Are you 100% sure that heaven is your home? If you're not sure, you can call upon the name of the Lord right now. It is not joining the church. It's not getting baptized. But you can become a Christian. Is there anyone here tonight? You say, I, I want Jesus as my Savior. Just raise your hand. Just hold your hand up for a moment. I want to choose Jesus as my Savior. I'll pray with you. You can pray right there in your seat. Anyone at all. I want to trust Christ as my Savior. Father, thank you for the many good and godly friends we have both within and without the church. Lord, teach us. Teach us to be a, a loyal friend, a godly friend, a faithful friend, a caring friend. Show us how to guard our tongue so that we do not destroy or disrupt the friendships of others. Help us to speak wisely. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. May we stand together as we sing a song of invitation. My Jesus, I love thee as we stand together, as we sing it to the Lord tonight, to our greatest friend, the Lord Jesus. May we sing to him tonight.